Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We'll continue with our hymn of the month, Glorious Things of You Are Spoken. Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, formed you for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, you may smile at all your foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well, supply your sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever will their thirst assuage? Grace which, like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. Round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear. For a glory and a covering, Showing that the Lord is near, thus deriving from the banner, light by night and shade by day. Safe they feed upon the manna which God gives them on their way. Save your sins of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride at pity, I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, 
none but science children know. All right, we'll continue with the uh, catechism memory work. Where is this written? The holy evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we'll continue with Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, kids can go off to Sunday school. I think Andrew's ready to go somewhere. Um, on this uh, hymn, Glorious Things of You Are Spoken, uh, Zion City of Our God, the hymn is kind of picturing, if you will, this, this Mount Zion. And, of course, when we think of Mount Zion, we, we think of heaven, right? We think of, uh, of getting to that, to that place, the, the heavenly city, where we'll be with Christ forever. But the imagery is really imagery of the Old Testament, right? This is imagery where David uh, goes. David's the first one to use this term, I believe, in the Old Testament, where he goes to Jerusalem and... Uh, settles there and brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city, and he calls it the the city of Zion, right? The city uh, on a hill. And I I, I love this hymn because in, in the in the beginning you hear about uh so so it's actually a, it's almost a hymn to the city, right? Glorious things of you are spoken, Zion, city of our God, right? It's uh, that we we would think of uh, the you there as as God immediately. I write right if you think of the hymn title, "Glorious Things of You Are Spoken," you think, "Oh, I'm probably going to be singing to God." But it's actually singing about the city, right? Yeah. Um, and then what is in this city, right? Uh, he whose word cannot be broken formed you for his own abode. So God's word formed 
this city to be his abode, his dwelling place. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? So this city is a solid place, right? It's, uh, this is like Matthew 16, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. With salvation's walls surrounded, you may smile at all your foes, right? And so then you get this hint that we're in the city, right? Um, that we're surrounded with the walls of salvation. And then at the end of the hymn, um, we finally actually hear that. Savior sense of Zion City, I through grace a, mem- a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in your name. Right, so... It's this hymn about having refuge in the city of God, right? We live in the city of God. The city of man can't do anything to us. And um, anyway, I'll leave it at that. We'll look at some of the imagery more in the next couple weeks. But um, it's a it's a great hymn that uh, we're we're chill like the that last line for instance all their boasted pomp and show um or fading are the world's vain vain pleasures all their boasted pomp and show solid joys and lasting treasures none but zion's children know right we're children of the city of of zion so it's a I, i encourage you to think about that hymn it's a it's a great really a great text all right in the uh catechism memory work so we have the we just have the words of institution. So um, if you remember in the context of the catechism and the sacrament of the altar, this this comes right after when Luther defines what the sacrament of the altar is, right? So he says, um, the Lord's Supper is Jesus' true body and blood given for us Christians to eat and to drink. And and then he says, where is this written, right? What Where in the Bible does this, does this idea come from that the... That the Lord's Supper is Jesus' true body and blood under the bread and wine given for Christians to eat and to drink. Where does this idea come from? Oh, it comes from the institution of the sacrament, right? From the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And not only does it show up in the Bible just one time, but it shows up in the Bible four four times, right? In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then in, and then St. Paul uh, writes in 1 Corinthians 11, right? The words of institution again. And... Um, these words of institution that we have here, they're a um, so they all four of them record the words of institution slightly differently, and what what we do, um, which makes sense, right? Because if you have four different people giving eyewitness accounts of the same event, they're gonna all write it down just a little bit differently, right? Um, their own kind of perception, but that actually provides a richness to it, right? And so what we do when we record the words of institution or say the words of institution, um, when I, you know, when I chant them on um, Sunday mornings, we take all four of the accounts and kind of combine them together, right? We include all the different bits and pieces uh, from the different apostles. So I have a question. Yeah. There's a that statement at the end. This do as often as you do it. That word remembrance. Do you think that that's a really good translation? Yeah, I think it's a fine translation because the the word there is basically, if I if I recall correctly, um, 
the word there is basically memory or, or honor. Um, so like do this in, in memory or honor of me. And you, I mean, maybe honor would be a slightly better translation. I know what you're getting at is that people will often use that word to say, oh, it's symbolic because you're just, all you're doing is remembering. But the point I always make about this is that remembrance in the Bible's view of things, and especially when we're talking about someone's last will and testament, right? This is the New Testament in my blood, is not kind of a dead remembrance, right? So when we use the term remember in English, we often think of like, I, I lost something and then I remembered where it was, right? Or I forgot, you know, um, this fact and then I remembered it later on. And so for us, remembering something is just a matter of like um, kind of passive knowledge, if you will. And, and in a way, it's kind of symbolic, right? It's like it's purely just in your head. But remembrance in the Bible is not like that. Remembrance in the Bible, for instance, if you read in like, I think like it's like Psalm 136 or something like that um, is one instance I know of uh, many others, is when the, when the Israelites remember the Passover, which happened for the people writing in the time of the Psalter, for the most part, centuries beforehand, They'll say, the Lord delivered us out of the waters, right? So it's this active participation in the past. Um, and that that's how the Passover is remembered, which is the context of the Lord's Supper, right? So Jesus is – what he's saying is, look, you had this old covenant with the Passover, which you – you participated in every year, right? You celebrated the meal every year. You still slaughtered the real the real life lamb, and you you remembered how the Lord brought you out of Egypt, right? Even though the literal event happened centuries and centuries beforehand with your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of Egypt, right? Because you participate in this past event. And the same, that's the context here, right? So the context is, here's this New Testament that I'm going to give you. And you're going to now do this in remembrance of me, right? You're going to actively participate in this for centuries to come. And um, especially if you think about that, like I said, the, the last will and testament. So it's, it says, this is the New Testament in my blood or the New Covenant in my blood. What is a testament, right? If someone leaves their last will and testament, um, that's their, you know, their, their well, y'all know what a will is, right? Yeah, their final say-so. And instructions. And, but that's, a, that's an active thing, right? Like it's, um, if you inherit an inheritance from someone's last will and testament, that money can still be spent, right? It's not like it. It's just there to look at. It's not just there to, to remember like, oh, that money exists, right? It's actually in a bank account somewhere and it can be used, right? And so when Jesus leaves us the blood in his testament, that, that's real blood that continues to be used. And yes, we remember what Jesus did on the cross 
whenever we take that blood, but it's still real blood, right? It's not just symbolic blood. So um, I think that's the the context is very important there. But if you can kind of parse that out, then remembrance, it's a, it's a fine translation. It's just, um, it's obviously been misused. Okay. Well, that's, that's the reason why I was asking, because people do use it as a, well, a lot of uh, denominations have turned it into a memorial service or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's I think that's just plainly not the context. I always tell people that say that that uh, you don't have a memorial for someone who is alive. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Jesus rose from the dead, right? And he's still living in heaven. Right. So, um, what does it mean to remember and proclaim him? Like it it can't just be this like thing in the past, right? And this is, Paul, Paul makes this point too in 1 Corinthians 11, after, right after he says the words of institution, he says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's this active proclamation of, of the Lord's death happening. Um, yeah. All right. Um, All right, we'll leave it. We'll leave the catechism at that. I mean, obviously, we could talk about the Lord's Supper forever. Um, all right, let's move on to Habakkuk. Uh, yes, sir. Okay, don't worry about it. All right, so last week we um, went through the prophet Habakkuk and we talked about the kind of background. And we got through the background, main themes, and outline of the book. So today we want to look at the key passages. Now, just by way of quick review, the what's going on in Habakkuk is Habakkuk is this um, Jew, prophet of Judah, um, kind of at the we're getting towards the tail end of the the kingdom, the divided kingdom of Judah, and so he's experiencing all these horrors as the kingdom is kind of falling, right? Um, and, and and he actually lives at the time, uh, we read in 1 verse 6, right, that God is raising up the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, the this ruling class of, the ba- of Babylon, um, to come and destroy, to come and destroy Judah. Now, uh, the thing that Habakkuk does that's very notable in the way that the book is structured is that he laments or he you could even say he argues with God. Right? He is uh, lamenting over all these terrible things that are happening around him, right? The child sacrifice that's happening around him, the 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 pagan nations that are wicked around him, um, how they're influencing Judah around him. And he feels this evil of living in the world. And so he complains to God or he argues with God about um, all these things that are happening. And uh, we basically get – I'll go ahead and put the outline back up here. 
Um, and let's see, one, two through ele- two to the eleven, he has his first argument with God. Um, yep, and then in one twelve through two five, he's got his second argument with God. And then in two six through twenty. We get the Lord's uh, the Lord's justice, right? So this is when the Lord responds with how He's going to solve the problem, and then um, in chapter three we hear of uh, Habakkuk's submission to Christ. Okay, and the first argument has to do with. Uh, justice, right? How can you be a just God and let these things happen? And then the second uh, argument has to do with what's often known as the problem of evil, which is if you're a good God, how can you let these things happen? Okay. So that's the, um, that's that kind of outline of the book. So that way, when we look at these key passages, you kind of know, know where we are. Okay. So the first passage we're going to look at is 1, 2 through 6. 1, 2 through 6. All right. I'm going to read this. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth, to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Okay. Um, so we get here Habakkuk's initial complaint to God. And what I want you to see here is really how bold his argument is. Right? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Right? Habakkuk ex- assumes things about God that we think are very impious to, to assume, right? Um, we, we, we would, I, I feel like, you know, normally it wouldn't occur to me to call out to God and assume that he's not hearing my prayer, right? I mean, I teach all the time, like, God hears our prayers, God hears our prayers, right? Um, I assume that God hears my prayers. Uh, but there are times, right, where it seems like God doesn't, hear our prayers, right? Uh, where we have some problem that's going on and we pray about it and we pray about it and we pray about it and it still doesn't go our way, right? Or the way that we think it should go. And that can be difficult, right? And I, I've talked to people who've, who've gone through things like this, right? Um, you pr- you've probably gone through it yourself in some way, but um, you know, a, a very stark example, right, is when someone 
say a family member has some sort of terminal illness and the person prays and prays and prays that they're going to be healed and then they die, right? They, they don't get healed, right? They pray for a miracle and it never happens. Um, and, and people will, will be angry at God with that for that, right? People will say, look, look, I prayed to your God. You know, he didn't do anything, right? Things like that. Um, but notice what Habakkuk does. He just, he just tells God how he feels, right? He doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't hide anything about how he feels. And I think this is a good example to us, right? We are, we get these examples all throughout scripture and the prophets and the Psalms that we can lament to God. We can, we can talk to God about how we really feel, right? Now, I'm not saying that we should continue to be angry with God, um, necessarily, but in those moments where we really feel that, it's okay to use those words, right? To say how it is that we really feel, right? I even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save me. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble, right? Um, and and notice, so when Habakkuk, he's on one hand, you could say he's blaming God, right? He says, you cause me to see trouble. On the other hand, you can also see his faith in that, right? That Habakkuk is recognizing that God is the one who's in charge of all things, right? He's the one who causes him to see trouble. And Habakkuk looks at God and says, look, I know that you have power, right? I know that you're in charge, and yet these things are happening, right? So um, it actually, I think lament in this way, it does show faith, right? It shows our confidence that God actually has the power to hear us and to do something about it, right? Um, it, instead of just saying, like, I, I think we almost would make, make God a weaker God if we say, oh, well, he can't handle what I am feeling, right? He can't handle the problems that I'm having, right? That makes God, that actually makes God to be a weaker God than he is. Um, all right. And then the Lord's, um, the Lord's reply, he says, look among the nations and watch, be utterly astounded for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. Okay, so immediately we already get this theme that we talked about last time um, of patience. Right? That actually we get, we get a couple themes in this initial reply. One of them is patience. Right. Look at the surrounding nations and be astounded. I will work a work in your days that you would not believe even if it were told you. Right. So the Lord promises he's going to do something. Which one do you want? We got plenty of baskets here. Any of them? Um. What was I saying? Uh, patience. Yes. So 
implicitly we know when he says, I will work a work in your days that you will not believe unless it were told you, we know that it's a work that's going to take some time, right? Because obviously Habakkuk can't see it yet, right? And it's a work in his days, meaning throughout the course of his life, okay? So this is a, the, one of the first things we should realize is that when it comes to, to waiting on the Lord's justice, um, it's something that may take time, right? Uh, you know, if we always want justice to be served quickly, right? Some this is, things we can't see in our lifetime. Right, and there, there are things we certainly can't see in our lifetime, right? Um, and we, are, we have this concept that we want justice to be served quickly, right? Everyone has the right to a fair, tri- fair and trial. speedy trial, right? Yeah. Which, of course, never actually <laughs> really happens because of how... Uh, I mean, my brother is a lawyer, so I shouldn't talk too too badly about lawyers. But um, I mean, lawyer, lawyers are good for what they do. But um, yeah, I mean, it takes stuff takes a long time, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, patience is one of the first things. The other thing um, that we are already kind of get introduced to here is that. Um, God is going to work good out of evil, right? That he does, the Lord does promise that he is going to work good out of these things that happen. And it's almost, between verse five and verse six, it's almost a surprise, right? Because you would expect God, he says, look, I'm going to work this work in your days, which you would not believe if it were told you. Yeah, and you think he's going to say like, you know, I'm going to restore Judah to its glory. And instead he says, yeah, I'm raising up this other nation to come and destroy you. Isn't that great? Like, um, but how does that work? Well, it works because God can work good out of evil. And he is, and he also is, this is the other kind of ironic thing, is he is a just God, right? Uh, Habakkuk is longing for justice. Well, Judah does deserve justice, right? Uh, and he's going to work justice by sending this this other wicked nation, right? He's going to take, the, God is the only, he, he is God, right? He's not like us, but God is the only God, our God is the only God who can take two wrongs and make a right, right? We can't do that, right? We, we try and make, take two wrongs and make a right, never works out, right? Um, but God can actually do that, right? He can take two evils and work them together for his good, right? It, which is an amazing thing. Okay. Um, all right, that, so that's from the first, first argument. Um, let's also just look briefly in, that, uh, in the second argument from, we're going to look at uh, one, we'll look at verse 12 and verse... Let's see, I don't want to look at 17. All right, so this is Habakkuk's second question, and this is that that kind of problem of evil. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O Rock, you have marked them for correction. Um, I'm actually going to keep reading here. I'm going to go a little bit further than that. You, You are purer of eyes than to behold evil. And you cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? So this is actually, I probably meant to 
write verse 13 there instead of 12, I think is what happened. But yeah, verse 13, especially you get this problem of evil. Look, you, God, are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. So why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Basically, why do you let bad things happen to good people, right? If you're so good, if you're so um, pure and you can't stand wickedness, why do you let bad things happen to good, good people? All right, so that's the question. Um, let me, uh, I must have messed up my, my, my numbers here. I didn't actually really, I must have copied this down wrong. Anyway, okay. Well, look, just look at that. That's the question. And then let's, let's look at, yeah, let's look at the, the Lord's response here. Um, and we're going to look at, uh, two verses one through four. That's what we're going to look at. Okay. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. All right, so a couple things here. Um, one, in, in verse uh, 2 there, and uh, it's actually it's 2 through 4, that's really what I meant. Yeah, I, I, somehow I messed up all my numbers here. All right, um, in, in chapter 2, verses 2, the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Okay, so um, this is kind of an aside, but it's a very nice verse to have here that the Lord wants this to be written down. Right, this is about the Bible, right? That we, we get this sneak peek that Habakkuk records this. Um, so not, I mean, most of the time when, when the prophets record something that the Lord says, they'll say something like, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord said to me, so on and so forth. Um, we don't always get the part where the Lord tells them to write it down, right? But here we, we hear, and we can assume this happens, right, for a lot of, of prophet prophecies as well, that the Lord says, write this down, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. And I, I think what that's saying, I mean, one, it's great because it's verbal inspiration, right? We get the, the doctrine that, that God actually commanded these things to be written down and that, that the Holy Spirit inspired the words that the prophets write down. But secondly, I think the fact that this, is, that this shows up here is saying to, to the reader, hey, pay attention, right? Because... The Lord wanted this written down. The Lord wanted this to be of special note. Whatever the Lord's about to say, this vision is really important, right? That he, this one says so that a herald may run with it. Yeah, that, so that he may run who reads it. Right. Um, so tell. I think that's I th- I think that's reading a little bit into it. Mm-hmm. That that to say that it's a herald. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't believe that word is is there in the Hebrew, but I may be mistaken. Um, the um, I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, but the 
the NKJV, which I'm reading out of. Um, well, nor, nor, it says are who, that whoever reads it. Right. That's yeah. I think they're trying to make more sense of it. <clears throat> I think this is more, maybe more metaphorical that it's whoever is going to read this is going to be able to run in the same way that, um, like Isaiah 40, the young man shall run and not grow weary. Right? Run the, the race of faith. Right? Not necessarily a herald bringing a message. Right. So. Um, but well, I just thought, it, to me, it would mean that we're all like heroes. That we yeah. Yeah, there is a sense to that, right? That we'll be able to to run with the message, right? Like uh, that. That's again Isaiah, like, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, right? So, yeah, that's definitely a good point. Um, go ahead, Steve. Also, it reminded me of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, you know, which was. The, the angels were also heralds. Yeah, the angels are messengers. That's what the word angel means. Yep. Um, but anyhow, I yeah, I think um, I think the main point here is is just that the the Lord the Habakkuk's drawing attention because he says, hey, this is the part the Lord want me to write down, and it's also not surprising because then when we get to the main the main um, Verse here, verse four, the the big climax, um, that the just shall live by faith. That verse is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Um, it's quoted. Let me see if I just got it in the in the references here. Actually, um, Romans one seventeen and Hebrews ten thirty eight. It's quoted. So um, it's it's clear that the the New Testament authors right obviously thought this was also an important idea in an important verse right so and this is the next kind of theme that we that we get out of this is uh the just shall live by faith right and we talked about this last week that okay what is god's answer to the this problem of evil if god is so good why does he allow bad things to happen to good people bad things to happen to good people we don't totally understand right that that's part of god's point um, is that the just, those who are righteous, they don't live by knowing everything or by figuring everything out, right? They don't live by having the answers to all these problems, right? The just live by faith. That is to say trust. That God is, that, and trust in what? Trust, first of all, in Jesus Christ, right? That that God is forgiving sin and raising the dead and second trust in that God is working through Jesus Christ evil for good right for those who are called according to his purposes Romans 8 828 right um, this is how the this is how we live we live trusting and I would also point out just kind of apologetically that this is really the only answer that's at all satisfactory to the problem of evil um so you know this is something that if you ever watch like debates of like does god exist between a christian and an atheist or whatever they'll always bring up the problem of evil and the the thing that i think is the most the the best argument against the kind of atheist view that well god god obviously can't really exist because if god's so good then 
you know, uh, why, did, why does he let all this evil happen if he's all powerful and all good? Um, the thing that they're trying to do there is be God, right? They're assuming that that's how a good and powerful God would actually function. But that's, that's, that, for one, that is a presupposition on their part, right? But the other thing is that they have then to define what is evil, right? Like if, because if God doesn't exist, if God didn't create this world and order this world in a certain way and give his laws as just and right and define what justice is and what justice isn't, right? And think about kind of the, the evolutionary mindset Right, that we're we're all just everything's just random, right? We're all just random particles that have collided together in space and millions of years have passed and now here we are. Right? If that's the case, then why is evil evil to begin with? Right? Why is it even wrong to murder my brother? What why I was just ask a person myself, but you would call God a tyrant if he acted against your agency against the agency of humanity, then you would call him a tyrant. So he's a, so if he allows you to do the things you want to do, he, he allows evil. But if he acted against your will... And yeah, right. There's a, there's a double standard. Yeah, there's definitely a double standard there. But the yeah, the other thing I'd say, too, just, just what I was saying, is that um, it, I, I have a problem. I, I, I admit that the problem of evil is a real problem, Right? That I don't I don't understand why God does the things He does, but I have a problem of a God that I don't understand. You have the problem of evil you don't understand. Which would you rather have, right? Um, I'd rather know what's right and wrong and not understand God than have no way to define what's right and wrong, and and uh, to not have a God to deal with it, right? So that brings me to another question, or maybe. I don't necessarily know that we understand what evil actually is, because, I mean, well, I'll just use this example, and I know there are different opinions, but in in the grand scheme of things, we would call the res- result of World War II, culturally at least, we would call it good. But look at how destructive and evil it was, and how many people died, and Nations were plowed over and and men upon men. And they were just men. They were even the German soldiers, the Axis soldiers, they were just men. They had yeah, I, and, you know, I would say I, I understand what you're saying. Um, that that culturally we often try and define good and evil for ourselves. But I would say that we do biblically understand what evil is and we can i think it's totally right for a christian to look at at world war ii for instance and say it was all around evil like um that and and of course and of course hindsight's 2020 right that there maybe um if this and this and this and this didn't happen this all could have been avoided right um and that would have been the better thing that would have been the more righteous thing and it was, you know, maybe at the end of the day, um, 
there there are arguments on from all various sides. It's a very complex issue, right? But that we could say it was an unjust war. This is why we think it was a just war. This is why we think it's an unjust war. Maybe these technologies should not have been used. Maybe these using these technologies in warfare is unjust. Um, whatever the case may be. But I I, I wouldn't take that a cultural misunderstanding of something that's happened in the past to say that we don't understand what evil is. We know what evil is. We just might not have interpreted certain historical events correctly. Well, I mean culturally. Yeah, culturally, yeah. I don't mean I don't mean Christians. Obviously right. Christians have the Bible so we know what evil is. Right. I mean like the culture at large. Hum, humanity at large does not understand what evil actually is. Right. No, that's a that's a good point. Um, that that the I see what you're saying that the culture that like the people that you'd be talk, debating with about the problem of evil they don't even have a good understanding of what evil is um, necessarily because because they've so distanced themselves from God's God's word. All right, um, I got to get going here. We got confirmations and stuff today, so let's uh, end in a word of prayer and we'll pick up key passages next time. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day. We pray that you would continue to teach us your word, that we may learn from it, and that we may live by faith in the promises that you have promised us. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.